0: Many people who put their lives at risk, we see that in research about the Holocaust, you know, helping Jewish people, hiding Jewish people, and so on, what they say time and time again is, my dad was always standing up for what was right. You know, my mom was always helping those who were less fortunate. Moral courage seems to be learned around the kitchen table.
1: Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. We've talked before on the show about people who stand up for what they believe is right, especially in the context of domestic politics. But as we're facing an international crisis with all eyes on Russia's invasion of Ukraine, I wanted to think a little bit more about how we see these moral rebels standing up for their principles. So today I'm excited to have a good friend of politicology, Professor Catherine Sanderson, back on the show to talk about this. Catherine earned her doctorate in psychology from Princeton University and is the Polar Family Professor and Chair of the Psychology Department at Amherst College. She's also the author of Why We Act Turning Bystanders into Moral Rebels. Catherine, it's always great to see you. Thank you for making the time and welcome back to Politicology.
0: It's always so great to talk with you. Thanks for the invitation.
1: It's been over a year now, if you can believe it, since we had our first conversation about moral rebels. So why don't we begin with a little bit of background, a reprise for those who haven't listened to that yet, although we'll link to it in the show notes. What is a moral rebel?
0: So what we know from psychology is that lots of people, most people, are really influenced by people around them that we tend to conform, we tend to obey. And and we do that for lots of different reasons. We don't want to be ostracized. We don't want to stick out. And there are probably lots of very good reasons for us to want to fit in with those in our social group in particular. And in some cases that can lead to positive outcomes, uh, people supporting their group, people showing in-group loyalty, you know, and, and, and doing acts of kindness and so on. But of course, there can also be really big problems with it that people, in fact, ignore bad behavior if committed by members of their in-group. However, there is a subset of people who psychologists call moral rebels, who basically seem to not fall prey to the same extent to a need to fit in. And so these moral rebels are willing to kind of speak up and call out problematic behavior of all types.
1: That characteristic that you described it, we believe, is most likely an evolutionary trait, right? We, we evolved to behave with the group, right? Group cohesion was important for survival across the centuries and millennia. But what you're talking about is essentially bucking that instinct to do good.
0: Yes, that's exactly right. And And again, there's lots of evidence suggesting that it's usually good to fit in and be a part of your group. You know, it takes a village, and so on. So, probably in many cases, in fact, it is very good. Um, and and that's one of the reasons why standing up to your group feels really hard.
1: I think it's easy to understand uh, the bystander effect when we think about emergency situations, which we've talked about before. And you used an example, I think, on the about someone on a bus. How? should we be thinking about the bystander effect in the context of international crises like the war in Ukraine?
0: So there is lots of evidence on sort of a, a broader global level that the same sorts of factors play out in terms of the extent to which people can overlook uh, major crises at a global level. There has obviously been lots of outpouring of support for Ukraine over the last, you know, month or so within the United States but also worldwide, but there's also been, you know, frankly some criticism or hey, um there were some other bad things that happened. Did you remember Syria? Did you remember, you know, and so yeah. on? It's been interesting, frankly, to sort of see when does our attention get drawn in a particular way? When do we feel empathy and connection and compassion? And it's clear that that Americans, again, do not respond to all global crises in the same way.
1: Right. Yeah. And so what do you think is happening here? Why do you think we're having this kind of emotional resonance with the um, people who are fighting for freedom, for their right to determine their own future in Ukraine? What is it that resonates with us about that?
0: So I I think there is clearly evidence that part of it is just, frankly, racism, that people find themselves drawn to, oh, this could be me in Ukraine, that it is largely white people who are fleeing. Um, People are really recognizing, oh, if that was, you know, my house, if that was my children, you know, and so on. But it's also clear that there's been a huge amount of attention. So the media chooses what to cover. The media chooses, Mm. you know, who is presenting what images are they showing? And it's been striking in terms of the attention that has been paid to the horrific stories of, you know, families who, you know, the the mom and two daughters killed on the bridge. You know, again, the these images that are just very, very compelling, and many of us can really resonate with, oh, if that was me. And there's certain cases, again, in which that attention has been drawn. Do you remember the case um a few years ago? There was a a two or three-year-old little boy who washed up on the shores. Maybe it was Greece or something. And there was, again, this outpouring of support for this child. But it really often takes two sorts of images for us to feel that level of deep empathy where we want to help.
1: You know, you, you just made me think of a phenomenon I'd love for you to explain and expand on a little bit, which is this, you know, I, I, know, I know it uh, in the practical sense from, you know, my work in marketing. Uh, but when you're, when you're, you know, for example, if you're a charity trying to raise money to feed starving children in Africa, for example, the most effective way to raise money is to show the story of a single person. Maybe one child and maybe that child's sibling, as opposed to the entire orphanage or the hundreds of thousands of kids that are going to go without hunger. Can you explain why that's so effective? Why is the volume uh, a disadvantage to show just how vast the suffering is relative to a single person's plight?
0: yeah, that's a great example. I actually talk about that in my class in social psychology, and it's research done by Peter Singer at Princeton, um, showing that if you say there are a million children in Africa who are hungry, you know, would you please help? You get far fewer responses than if you say, Rokia is a six-year-old girl living in Africa. Will you help? And and I think what happens is people become just absolutely overwhelmed with the level of tragedy. I can't help a million children in Africa eat. Oh, but this one particular kid, this one kid, Rokia, absolutely, I can help her. And so I think that's a really great example of sort of personalizing it and also empowering us in a way, right? Knowing here is something I can do. Uh, you probably heard about the Uh, Really clever idea. I think it was somebody in Utah who had this idea of renting Airbnbs in Ukraine as a way of helping people. Again, so... Simply paying for the rent, obviously not intending to go and stay in the in the Airbnb in Ukraine. But that was such a tangible, easy thing to say. Oh, I can do that. That is something I can do to help. And, and I think during times of mass crisis, people are really looking for something that they feel they can do. And so having sort of a tangible go-to is very appealing.
1: So uh, the last time we talked about moral rebels, we were focused on what was going on domestically, um, taking a stand when you could face social consequences, particularly the US domestic political uh, situation, but not necessarily physical harm. So how should we be thinking about people like Russians who are protesting the war, who could face social risk, but also physical risk? Um, I'll remind our listeners that you know, uh, shortly after the war broke out, there were these massive, massive protests across Russia, including in St. Petersburg, Vladimir Putin's hometown. And and there were these images and videos of people flooding the streets to protest the war. And then soon after, Putin signed a law that basically criminalized, I think, it was up to 12 or 15 years in prison if you were considered to be spreading uh, misinformation or misrepresenting the uh, what is it? Air quotes special military operation, right? And now that comes with enormous physical risk, and we've seen uh, examples of that in Russia. So, how are you thinking about those acts uh, in the context of moral rebels, and and how should our listeners be thinking about that?
0: Yeah, I love that question. So, when when many people think about moral rebels they often kind of immediately go to acts actually of what we call physical courage, not moral courage. So, so often when I'm talking about the bystander effect, people immediately go to a person who you know dove into a lake and you know saved a drowning puppy or you know broke into a burning car and dragged out you know a woman or you know so on and in all honesty those are not examples of moral courage because it's it's not controversial to save a puppy who's who's drowning or a person from a burning car so so people often sort of mistake the bystander effect as being something that's simply about physical bravery in many cases physical bravery is is hard psychologically because you worry about, you know, dying, but, but it's not hard socially because if you're successful, you're going to be praised. You're not going to be rejected. So what's fascinating in terms of what we're seeing in Russia is people are showing physical courage and moral courage because they are engaging in acts of extreme moral courage, standing up and doing the right thing and facing potentially, as you just noted, a serious potentially life imprisonment. Uh, potentially death. I think of the uh, person, the woman at the television station, who you know held up the sign saying, "It's a war. It's not a special military you know operation or whatever." And and what will happen to her? I'm thinking about, frankly, the the president of Ukraine who. People have said, we can we can rescue you. We can get you out. You know, the, the United States, we can help extricate you. And he's like, no, you know, I'm not going. Even though it's very, very clear that there have been intentions and I'm sure are continuing intentions to try to kill him or at least capture him or, or both. And so to me, what's been striking is this coalescing of both moral courage and physical courage, you know, so clearly in Ukraine and in Russia.
1: Yeah, I I love that example of the news editor you mentioned um, at, at one of the state-aligned news networks in Russia. That was one of the most watched shows uh, in the country that she did that on. She was holding a sign that said "No War" in English, and then and then don't believe the propaganda; they're lying to you. And she wrote that in Russian. Like that would be like a Fox News producer walking out on set behind Sean Hannity, you know, like to, to put that in perspective for people.
0: And even worse, because because we can, I think that you wouldn't then be in prison uh, yeah. in box. Like you might be fired, but you wouldn't be shot, right? <laughs>
1: right, right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so help us understand how someone comes to that decision to take that stand. Because I, I feel like, we don't really especially given the 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 physical consequences that we're talking about i think most listeners don't fully get um what would have to happen in your emotion in your emotional state in your in your mental state in order to get to that level
0: so that's a great question and and what we know in terms of moral rebels are basically there are three factors so one they tend to be people who are less socially inhibited. So they don't worry so much about embarrassment. They don't worry so much about the consequences. So on some level, you know, that woman 100% knew what the consequences were going to be. I believe she was immediately arrested. I believe she was held, you know, without, you know, food and access to legal care for, for a number of hours. I don't honestly know if she's... You know, okay today or in prison today, but but certainly in the immediate aftermath, there were there were serious consequences. So one, you just don't worry about the consequences to the same degree. Uh, two, you feel very very high levels of empathy. So there are people that that literally think about themselves in somebody else's shoes. And so for her, maybe it was thinking about the Ukrainian mom or, you know, the, the Ukrainian family or some other, you know, sense of these people are really being treated poorly. Um, and, and then three, you also are willing to act. So even if people are, you know, emotionally connected and are, are sort of feeling empathy and don't worry about the embarrassment, they're willing to take that next step. And clearly the fact that she had the sign it was not an, a momentary decision, right? I mean, she had written it out. She had written it out. She'd probably planned how she was going to get there. She might have planned the moment in the broadcast. Um, she'd gotten the, the sign, you know, backstage in order to be able to carry out that plan. So in many cases, what we see, and again, I don't know this particular woman, of course, but in many cases, what we see is they've, they've come from families in which other people have shown moral courage and physical courage that we see that in research about the Holocaust. And I imagine eventually we will see it in research about Ukraine, in that many people who put their lives at risk, you know, helping Jewish people, hiding Jewish people, and so on, what they say time and time again is, my dad was always standing up for what was right. You know, my mom was always helping those who were less fortunate. Moral courage seems to be learned around the kitchen table.
1: You know we've talked about how people can be drawn to people who take these stands, why why we feel connect, why why their acts resonate with us, even when they're not facing physical uh, harm. You know, ever since Trump became president, right? People from across the political spectrum have flocked to Mitt Romney um, it, with, with lots of disclaimers, right? I don't agree with him on anything. <laughs> and, they, and they feel it necessary to make sure everybody knows I don't agree with him on anything, but I am glad he's doing this. And I, and I feel uh, a deep sense of respect for him. Uh, And Liz Cheney, because of the risk that she took standing up to Donald Trump. And that, you know, that doesn't mean there's no political calculation on her part. Of course there is, right? But we do feel this this sense of resonance when we see people become moral rebels or or do acts of moral rebellion. And now we're seeing people across the globe voicing their support for President Vladimir Zelensky. And in particular, right, uh, man, the... This guy giving a speech to the United States Congress in at-shirt and getting a standing ovation is the perfect example, I think of of, uh, of an emotional connection between us and a moral and a very clear moral rebel. So can you talk a bit about what draws us to these moral rebels and what motivates a standing ovation for something like that because it it wasn't about just the words he said right it wasn't about military strat it wasn't about any of that there was something deeper happening love for you to expand on that
0: so I have so many different thoughts, but I'm actually going to start with, I actually, I was chuckling when you gave the example of, you know, Mitt Romney. I had a letter published in the New York Times um, about Liz Cheney. And I'm just, I pulled out my letter as um, as you were speaking. And so this is how it starts. As a lifelong Democrat, I certainly disagree with representing <laughs> <laughs> so that It was just because I was literally the opening line. And then I said, but as a social psychologist and, and a mother of three, I could not agree with her more about the need to be able to tell your kids that you stood up and did the right thing. And so to me, you know, that that really is the example, right? Being able to say, I stood up and did the right thing. So so that was my first thing. Two, in terms of Zelensky as moral rebel, I I love Zelensky as moral rebel. And I'll say, he really epitomizes what we've just talked about. Number one, um, he lost family members in the Holocaust. So he's very clearly resonating with, if you don't speak up, if you don't stand up and you just kind of let things happen, bad, bad things happen. So he very much on a personal level is resonating that. Now on a completely different topic, he he was an actor, a comedian. He was on Dancing with the Stars. And so to be able to do that, you know, <laughs> have to have a level of, I don't care if I look stupid, right? I mean, many, many people are like, I would not go on Dancing with the Stars because I know I would look stupid. And so to the extent that that he feels very, very comfortable with who he is and standing up what is right. The fact that he's like, I'm going to address Congress in a t-shirt. I'm not going to go and put on a suit, you know, or a tie and and sort of act, you know, like a leader in that sense is really speaks volumes about his comfort with himself. And, and again, I think that's what appeals to us about moral rebels. I think it's what appeals to us about Mitt Romney and, and Liz Cheney and Zelensky and, and other people who are really standing up and, and we see them as authentically themselves. And that feels... Really comforting, right? They're they're not doing it for some pretense. But the other thing which occurs to me, and this is a a totally different topic that frankly I would love for political to explore in the future, um, is that Zelensky's speeches are a perfect example of the psychology of persuasion. Because what you see is Mm. that he's been going around to different countries, and every country he is tailoring the message to the audience. So to the United States Congress, it's words from Martin Luther King Jr. Oh, it's, it's referencing 9-11. But when he addressed the UK parliament, it was words from Winston Churchill. I mean, again, (sighs) what he's doing is so clever because it is about persuasion, but it's very, very specifically tailored persuasion that is perfect for the right audience
1: we are definitely going to dive into that i'm hoping if he'll if he'll agree i'd love to get professor giardini on uh, bring him out of retirement a little bit to discuss this because he's you know the the pioneer of the psychology persuasion and just a you know an absolute master at at it so uh and zelensky <laughs> that would be a, that would be a terrific show <laughs> so maybe this is a little bit of a detour but digging even deeper into this sort of why we're drawn to the um, why why we have this emotional connection between uh, between ourselves and 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 moral rebels is it that we aspire to something in the in the act of bravery and the act of uh, in this demonstration of character is it that we 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 want to. St- think our, of ourselves as being capable of doing what they're doing if, if put in that very difficult situation? Is it, is it a, sort of a, an envy of the sense of security in themselves, uh, in the self-confidence? What is it psychologically that connects us with those, with, with those acts? Is it, is, it a, is it sort of a selfish longing to be like them? What do you think is happening?
0: Yeah, so that's um, a fascinating question, and honestly, one that I don't think research has looked at so much. In part, because sometimes moral rebels—and this is why I was sort of puzzling with your question—that sometimes moral rebels in the moment are not actually liked. So, so we've just talked about you know Mitt Romney or Liz Cheney and and our admiration for them. Um, they're not universally liked, right? I mean, Liz Cheney is in the fight of her life. In terms of a primary. Um, And, and so one of the things is that sometimes moral rebels look good over time. And, and I think that's sort of what Mitt Romney and Liz Cheney are saying is that, you know, right now I'm taking a lot of heat, you know, right now I'm really not being like, at least again, within members of my own party, but maybe over time, Uh, you know, I will be judged to be on the right side of history. And so uh, sometimes there are cases in which moral rebels are not seen in a universally positive light. We can think about that in terms of whistleblowers who are, you know, severely criticized in, in the moment and really rejected. We see that frankly, playing out in terms of Theranos that, you know, there were whistleblowers that brought to light that scandal who were not seen positively by their colleagues in the moment. But in retrospect, oh, yes, that was the right thing. Now, in the case of Zelensky, I think there are a few different things happening. One, there really isn't a sense that he's doing something wrong, you know, that, that there's not a sort of group that's saying, oh, he's awful. And so there really is sort of universal acclaim because he's so clearly on the side of right. You know, it's not a subtle distinction. They're not sort of two sides, you know, should Ukraine exist or should Ukraine not exist? You know, so I think there was a uh, you know something went around on Twitter which was, you know, if if Russia, you know, stops the, the fighting, then you know there will be peace. If Ukraine stops fighting, there will not be Ukraine right i mean so ukraine could just say we're not going to fight and then and then ukraine just isn't a country ukraine is just part of russia in that sense and so so there really aren't two equal sides in this way i also think in line, in light of your view we all do aspire to be moral rebels right we all like to think that we are the person who would call out the bully on the school bus or the jerk in the locker room and say stop it you know that's racist or that's homophobic or you know that's sexist or whatever we do fathom ourselves as wanting to be those people and also Many of us, I'm, I'm going to dare say most of us, can think of a time in our own lives in which we wished we'd done something a little bit different. And that when I'm talking about the bystander effect, again, which is pretty often, invariably, and this this will happen when I give a talk, when I do an interview, you know, our podcast, or whatever, invariably at the end, the recording will be over, the interview will be over, and somebody will say, you know, I can think about this time. And then they tell me a story. And the story is, you no. Know, I was on a school bus, I was in a restaurant, I was in a grocery store, I was in an airport. And there's a story about, I saw something and I wish I'd said it. You know, I was at a board meeting um, about a month ago and um, a man came up to me and and told me a story about how he had not stood up to a bully in junior high. And and that bully was horrible to lots of people. and, And he was not being victimized, but he didn't stand up. And he said, my goal as a dad is to make sure my kid's the one who stands up. You know and i and i think that sort of speaks to that speaks to our our hope and yes our aspiration that we in fact would be a person who speaks up and and therefore when we see somebody like zelensky doing it so vividly and clearly uh facing potential consequences that most of us can't even imagine um it is really aspirational you know that is it really speaks to us at a core human level
1: it really reaches in and calls us to a higher version of ourselves. That's how I feel.
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, he's, he's so clearly showing leadership, right? I mean, he's sho- so clearly showing what we want for ourselves, but also what we want for our leaders.
1: Yeah, it, that's a really great segue because I wanted to ask you about how we should be thinking you know about about whether and how world leaders can be moral rebels when they're making these huge um, you know policy decisions. Uh, Carly Fiorina, uh, my 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 old boss and friend, uh, discussed character last year as a crucial consideration in evaluating elected officials. And um, you know it, she she likes to say it this way: character is revealed over time and under pressure. And as we learned, character has been um, as a, as a measuring stick for our, for our elected officials, um, or our, our candidates anyway, in elections has been sorely lacking, um, in, in, in the dialogue. Um, we, we tend to focus a lot about their policy views and their politics and what they would do and wouldn't do. Um, but, but we, we don't really put enough emphasis anymore, uh, on, on someone's character as revealed over time and under pressure. And I feel like if we had done that with Donald Trump, we might've avoided some things. And so I wonder what you think about that, that idea of character vis-a-vis world leaders and how we should be looking for signs of moral rebellion in their, in their lives.
0: So I heard of the interview that you did with um, Carly Fiorino, and I will say that, that quote is perfect. I mean, that quote about character is just absolutely perfect. And and I think your intuition about, you know, Donald Trump and if we look for character. But here's the thing. It was not hard <laughs> to look for evidence of Donald Trump lacking in character, right? I mean, even if you go back to 2015, it was not like, huh, let's see. Well, let's look at, you know, marriage and divorce and infidelity and let's look at bankruptcies and let's look at, you know, how he treated his kids. And I mean, it, it was not subtle. But I will also say that when we talk about character, it seems to me that character is important at all levels. So certainly character is important in terms of our elected officials. Character is also important in terms of who's captain of the lacrosse team, right? Character is important in terms of who is CEO of Nike or Amazon. Character is important at a local level. It's important in terms of who is the mayor, who is on the school board, right? I mean, character is important in all different kinds of leadership, not just in our elected officials. Character is important locally and globally. Uh, My college is currently doing a search for a new president. Character is important (laughs) in terms of the presidents of our (laughs) universities, right? I mean, we can we can see character playing out in all different circumstances, and character
1: matters. And it's important at the individual level. Like it, it's important that I'm a person to whom character matters when I'm when I have some kind of say over who a leader is going to be, whether that's a leader at the local level or a leader at the global level, right? It matters that I put emphasis on that.
0: Absolutely. I I was I'm struck by uh a uh, compliment that I received from one of my colleagues. And, and he sent me an email one day and there'd been sort of a a difficult department, you know, decision. And, and I had, had spoken up and taken some heat for it. And, and after the meeting, he just emailed me and he said, I just wanted to let you know that what I like about you the most is that in every situation, you try to figure out the right answer. And then you try to do that even if you're going to take a lot of heat for it. Now, I have tenure, so I'm not facing, you know, Zelensky-esque consequences. It's very hard to fire a professor with tenure. Very, very hard. Um, But but it was honestly the nicest compliment that I've ever received because I do think character matters in small ways, right? Character matters when you're sitting at a a dinner table. Character matters, you know, when you're... uh, on tra- public transportation and something is problematic i mean so so character does matter and i think as a mom you know that's what i want for my kids in fact the the dedication for my book um why we act turning bystanders into Moral rebels the dedication reads you know to my three kids andrew robert and caroline with hope that you will never stay silent in the face of things that matter and you know and and that ultimately is is what I as what I want as a mom. I want my kids to be the ones who have character and and who will not sit silently when there is problematic behavior. So yes, character matters in our elected officials, but it matters in small moments of our everyday lives as well.
1: Absolutely. So on our roundup uh, a couple of weeks ago, our weekly roundup, I uh, spoke with Al Cardenas about the surge in pro-democracy protests we've seen in recent years, since 2019, uh, specifically in countries like China and Belarus and Cuba. Um, We're seeing them now in Russia. There's obviously an added layer of physical safety when you protest these um, authoritarian governments. But are you seeing something about the current state of the world that would make people more likely to take a moral stand.
0: Ooh, I, I would like to be able to answer that in a sort of hopeful way. Um, I, and I'm really sort of at a loss. I mean, I think that I think that in some ways people are understanding that there's a little bit of a tipping point now that, that all of a sudden, and, you know, Anne Applebaum, of course, has written about this and and talked about this very eloquently, that it it feels a little bit like we're at a tipping point that we've been sort of going along and it's been fine. I mean, I frankly think that for many countries, what happened during the Donald Trump era was unimaginable. You know, the United States is going to potentially pull out of NATO uh, the United States is going to potentially, you know, uh, again, um, overturn an election. I, I mean, you know, things that, I, I mean, I, I, be, I believe as Mitt Romney has said, the United States is often the country that goes in and, and helps countries that are having problems God. running a democratic election. I, I mean, yesterday or the day before the the New York Times and Washington Post were reported the text messages between the wife of a Supreme Court justice and the chief of staff saying, here's how we're going to overturn the election. I mean, if we read about that in another country, we would be horrified. You know, this is a country that is not a democracy and this is terrible. And this is, and so again, I'm, I'm a little bit struck of, I don't know, because I don't know how it's going to go. I don't know how it's going to go.
1: To me, I, I see the the battle lines becoming a lot clearer than they have been in the past when I look at the world stage. You know, and Mike Madrid and I talk about this a lot. We talk about it on the show, um, Anne's brilliant piece uh, in The Atlantic from... I think it was several months ago. The bad guys are winning. Um, where she's sort of drawing the, she's sh- sh- sort of sketch, you know, sketching, tracing the battle lines between the autocracies and the democracies, or at least you know, the free world and the unfree world, and the people who want to keep the world unfree, right? Uh, and and I, and I I think it's a lot easier now if you're paying attention um, to find out who are the good guys and who are the bad guys to really understand that and and what does it mean to be a good guy and what does it mean to be a bad guy and i think it's forcing a moment of clarity about what our values are what our ideals are what does it mean to be a what does it mean to be america what does it mean to be a free people what does it mean to be able to determine the way you organize yourself and and now that we're seeing other countries fight with their lives and their bodies for that right for that Idea, I agree with you. I think we're at a tipping point. I think things are becoming a lot clearer to people who maybe haven't been paying attention to global affairs for a long time. Foreign affairs haven't really been in the zeitgeist for a long time, and and part of that is because um, it's been it's been complicated. And I think I've mentioned this with with Molly uh, McHugh before on the show. But every every military conflict that I've seen in my life up to now has been that the United States has been involved in has been at least. Complicated. It's not super straightforward. There, you know, and this is the first time um, that I've seen something very, very clearly. Uh, There is right and there is wrong, and um, and it's and it's very easy to judge that. And I feel like that is the that's the way the world seems to be sorting itself. There's it's it's becoming clearer. The battle lines are becoming clear, and I think we're headed for a you know a, a a long period of great global conflict. But with that comes opportunity. To redecide who we are, to remember who we are, why we exist, what are the things that bind us together, what do we think is important. And I think free people all around the globe are having to do that too. Um, uh, and I see that as a huge opportunity. So um, that isn't to say, like, who, who knows what's going to happen next, but I think it's just be on its way to becoming very, very clear. Does that make sense? What do you, what do you think?
0: Yeah, so, so here's what I'm trying to reconcile. So I I absolutely uh, agree with you that it is very clear and that, you know, one country invading another, it's not subtle. Um, and, And the attacks on civilians, again, not subtle, you know, hospitals and theaters and, you know, so on. Here's what I'm trying to reconcile. And and I, and I think, by the way, that's why there, there is almost unanimous support in, among, you know, most countries, again, recent UN resolution, but but also within the United States that, you know, we've seen, you know, Republicans and Democrats really come together and say, this is, you know, really a problem, what's happening in Ukraine, and, and we need to, you know, provide money and support and take in refugees and so on. Now, simultaneously in the United States, and I'm sure you know this number, cold, what percentage of Republicans do not believe that Biden was legitimately elected?
1: Oh yeah. Over over half. Still. Uh, yeah.
0: I mean, so, so so that's that's what I'm grappling with, right? That that on, on this global stage, we can absolutely see there is right and there is wrong. But honestly, what what continues to cause me great, great anxiety is, you know, what has been, you know, I think assumed and taken as a given is that like or don't like the results of an election in the United States, you accept it and you move on. And that's just, you know, what happens. And, and you know, Al Gore, frankly, demonstrated that in, in ways that must have been extraordinarily painful given, you know, all of the circumstances of his loss, which he accepted and Democrats accepted and, and you know, people moved on and, and Gore attended the inauguration, you know, of, of Bush and so on. And now simultaneously, we are here in the United States in which a majority of Republicans do not believe that the current president who was elected and was not elected, you know, in a in a narrow Gore-esque kind of margin, you know, clearly was elected, not just by the popular vote, but also by the Electoral College, you know, all ways in which we consider winning an election. And, and that, I have to say, that causes me great, great concern. So when you say, I mean, so Ann Applebaum says the bad guys are winning. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Even, even here, the bad, right. Even here, the bad guys are right. I, you're totally right. And I think, so uh, just to expand on the opportunity that I see, it may take other democracies and other places and other people fighting and dying for the thing that we have had and take for granted for so long for us to remember how precious it is in the first place. And I think. That in a nutshell is 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 what I is what I hope will happen because you're totally right. If we can't if we can't have an election where the loser agrees to lose, right? Then 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 what are we doing here, right? We will squander away this thing that we have fought so hard for, and and I think I hope that what we're seeing in Ukraine will 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 force us to remember, um, if not immediately over time, and. and i and and you know not not for nothing but since this is sort of a tangent but the lane that i see in the for the 2024 presidential election i can't see anybody who can fill it yet but but the lay, the opening for anybody on either party that is wide open is to define america because we don't have a common agreement on what america is here to do we don't have we've lost the plot on our, on our values, on what we're aspiring to, on why we exist in the first place. And, and if there were someone who could run through that lane, it is wide open, but I can't see anybody capable of making that moral case for American leadership in the world. And that, that I, that, that is the opportunity that I see. I hope someone seizes it and does it, but, um, but it's not, it's not a foregone conclusion. It's going to take all of us I remember back when I read your book, you wrote about the concept of um, boiling frog effect. You, you might want to begin by explaining that, but um, uh, you know, you, it, I have another question related. You and I are not going to hash out uh, military strategy, but as I'm watching how the United States and NATO are making decisions about what actions they're willing to take and what they w- are and aren't willing to do, I find my, myself asking, what's the line? That we have for when we do get involved, where do we, where do we draw the line and 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 why, how important is it for us to understand what our line is in the sand uh, to avoid the boiling frog effect, not just about if and when a leader should engage in military conflict but even in our in, a, in our everyday lives? Can you talk a little bit about that
0: Yes, and that's that concept so i'll start with explaining the boiling um, frog effect, and so that, that is the Apparently, I have to be honest, myth, apparently it's actually false. But anyway, mm. um, there is a myth that if you drop a frog in boiling water, the frog will immediately hop out. That that actually is not a myth. That is true. But But the myth is that if you put a frog in cold water and then you gradually heat up the temperature uh, the frog, in fact, will boil to death because the frog will never sort of recognize that the, the heat is increasing at the level that it's going to be dangerous because it just escalates very, very gradually. So apparently, actually, frogs will jump out if they're in water, which I've now been asked at a talk, so I've actually had to look that up. And somebody you know, asked me, I said, not a biologist, but anyway. So
1: <laughs> So it's a bad but, analogy for a different thing.
0: <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but but the boiling The so-called frog in boiling water effect does happen all the time in our daily lives. And and what this basically, how this plays out is that when a little thing occurs, people often are like, well, this is so little, you know, I I shouldn't really have to speak up now. And they sort of say, well, I'm going to wait until it gets, you know more serious you know it escalates but the problem is once you're down that road, it becomes very very hard because then to speak up you also have to justify not having spoken up with the three or four other times. So yeah yeah
1: I, th- I think this is what uh, what Professor Cialdini calls the consistency principle essentially because your past behaviors you you are sort of psychologically incentivized to be consistent with what you did in the past
0: I- exactly and, and that's why as soon as you make that first step to not speak up, You've made, you've made a choice, right? You've made a choice. And then again, we experience cognitive dissonance when you then have to justify that's the problem with consistency. We'd like to see ourselves as consistent over time. So speaking up later on means we have to also reconcile the fact that we didn't and that makes us feel bad. So we want to be consistent. So this happens all the time. So, you know, somebody says something problematic and you think, well, maybe that was just a joke or, you know, maybe that was whatever. I'm not going to, that's not that big a deal. And and it just escalates. And we see this in lots of different cases. We see this in in white collar crime, you know, in different cases of fraud. We see this in escalations of fraternity hazings or sexual misconduct. Uh, I'm certain that it helps explain the Harvey Weinstein thing and that, you know, initially he was probably just, oh, come to my hotel room or, you know, whatever. And then again, it just escalates and it becomes very, very hard for people to extricate themselves. What's been really interesting to see in Ukraine, of course, is that during the Olympics and before the Olympics, you know, the United States was regularly putting out Russia is planning to invade Ukraine. <laughs> this is happening. And and that was announced. I mean, it was like a preview of a war. A war is going to start soon. They are doing this and and we're just watching, oh, I wonder what's going to happen next. And and so you're absolutely seeing this this play out and I do think uh, at a global level having a sense of when it, when is there a line? So is it when there is the use of chemical weapons is it when the use of nuclear weapons? You know what is the use, you know what is the line? And to me that just seems that seems really really tricky because again as the United States and again other countries are standing by, we're making decisions that are that we're going to need to justify. But there also may well come a time at which standing by silently is impossible, and and certainly you can also look at the you know, the effect of when do you draw the line of, okay, well, how about if ultimately, Putin takes over Ukraine and that Ukraine Ukraine, in, you know, a year is is basically a part of Russia. Then what happens to Poland? Or then what, you know, again, th- then what happens after? And, and certainly that's what happened in Nazi Germany, right? It was not, you know, oh, we'll just take one country and then we're good. It was, again, an escalation. And so the, the risk here is that not speaking up in the face of what's happening in Ukraine, is a very slippery slope in lots of different respects for the United States, but of course, other NATO countries as well.
1: You know, that's such a good point, uh, especially when you think about pre-World War II Germany. There's a, there's a, there's a journalist, uh, now famous journalist, William Shire, wrote a book called The Berlin Diary. And um, this is a, a journalist who at the time – so we tend to think in retrospect that you can tell in advance when when all these things are going to happen. But in fact, reading through this diary of this journalist who was in Berlin in the years leading up to um, World War II – there was no sense among the German people about what Hitler was going to do and how bad it was going to get. And, and I just, I think that's worth remembering that you don't, it's not like suddenly there's this, there's this immediate, like we kind of have a luxury in this immediate moment of clarity with Ukraine, right? In the sense that everybody recognizes how right and how wrong both side, each side is, but it isn't always that way. Uh, and, and which is why character matters so much and recognizing uh, even small um, small wrongs that you can that you can write in the moment are so important.
0: And in many cases, calling out something in the moment, in fact, is of course much easier, right, than than thinking yeah. three days later, oh, I should have said something.
1: Okay, last thread. Um, I want to go back to the concept of empathy uh, and, and why there has been such an outpouring of support for Ukraine. Um, in another one of your books, The Positive Shift, you write about how reading can improve our ability to empathize. The Wall Street Journal reported that digital checkouts at libraries were up 33% in 2020 compared to 2019. We've seen a lot of, a lot of negative consequences, obviously, uh, from the pandemic. But are you seeing any behavioral changes that might actually foster empathy and increase capacity for, for being moral rebels?
0: Ooh, I love that question. So I will say that, you know, certainly the anything that helps us put our see the world from somebody else's perspective absolutely increases people's tendency to feel empathy and therefore increases people's ability to speak up. And and I think in lots of different cases, what's happened over the last two years has probably increased people's ability to feel empathy in a lot of different ways, in part that we've all been through this shared pandemic. So even uh, people in the United States can imagine, oh, yes, it must have been horrible to be in China and to be in lockdown, because you know what? I've been in lockdown. Or it must have been horrible to, have to wear a mask everywhere you go. Again, because I've had this experience. And so in some sense, the pandemic may have led to this increase in empathy because coronavirus impacted us all. It impacted the entire world, and people understand what that meant. I didn't get to see my family for a long time. You know, I didn't get to travel. I didn't get to, you know, attend school in person or, you know, graduation or or whatever it is. So in that sense, there may be this shared sense of empathy. The fact that the, you know, Olympics was delayed is is unprecedented. And and so in that sense, perhaps there is some level of this increase in empathy that we've seen. And really, Reading certainly is one way that that it can matter. But the other factor that I think is also really interesting is that so can theater. And uh, there's been very interesting research out of Stanford that has shown that having people go to see live theater in which they are exposed to people who are different from themselves. So I think in one case, it was like um, like a gay couple trying to adopt a baby. In other case, it was like steel mill workers. You know, again, so, so people from different walks of life. Um, all of a sudden, that act of, of watching live theater lets you be like, oh, I, I really, you know, theater is good because you imagine yourself being in that situation. So there are lots of different ways in which we can foster and develop our sense of empathy. And all of that is beneficial in terms of speaking up and being a moral level.
1: That is so cool. I'll have to check out that research. Um, Anything else before we wrap? Is there anything on your mind? Anything we didn't cover that you'd like to?
0: No, it's always uh, so interesting to talk about these intersections of politics and psychology. I I talk regularly about all of these topics with my students, and I'm hoping to inspire a little bit of uh, moral rebelness in themselves.
1: (laughs) You always inspire me. Um, Catherine Sanderson, it's so wonderful to be with you again. Um, Before I let you go, where can everybody find you on the internet and follow your work?
0: So I am on Twitter at Sanderson Speaks and Instagram at Sanderson Speaking.
1: Wonderful. We'll talk to you again soon. Take care. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.